And speaking of Jesus connects with apologetics, how do you communicate the gospel and connect with people? But it's also a very practical seminar on how does one talk comfortably and naturally about your faith with others. Uh, <clears throat> most non-Christians have a pretty positive view of Jesus. Uh, he's a good moral teacher, you know, basically Jesus was a good person, good influence, um, but when they hear the J word, Jesus, you oftentimes see this change in facial expression where they're, uh, you know, you feel the tension rising. And Christians oftentimes are also quite uncomfortable in speaking about Jesus. So there's discomfort on both sides. And it's worth thinking about why is that? And then how can one overcome that? So what I want to have a start off right now is turn to the person next to you. And uh, I talk about the question, what makes speaking of Jesus hard? There are a variety of things which might feed into that. But what makes it hard? So take a couple minutes and talk to someone near you about that question. Okay, you could probably go on for a while, but I want to watch your attention back this way. Okay, what were some of the, the thoughts that were exchanged about what makes speaking of Jesus hard? Exclusivity. This is the truth. You don't believe this. Why not Hinduism or Buddhism or, you know, why do you claim that you have the truth? How arrogant of you. I think people see him as, I mean, if, if people see him as this historical, you know, immortal figure of the past, there's not as much threat in there. But when you talk to him as an ever, if you speak to Jesus about, you know, him being the ever present, omnipotent, uh, a perfect sacrifice, your sins, then it becomes a different, uh, a different viewpoint. And so it becomes a little bit more, I think people put their defenses up when they hear that. Right. Historically, a good moral teacher, you know, good spiritual leader, that's fine. But when you start saying Jesus was God, and you can know him today, that's kind of in a different category than uh, uh, people are comfortable with. Or, so that can, that can be a problem. Yeah, so it could both be, well, what do I say, and how do I explain uh, you know, what, what, what the Christian faith is about? It's confusing somewhat. Uh, and uh, also, if I don't know how I'm going to respond to questions, there could be sort of, how, how do I articulate what I believe? Jesus died for our sins. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> or the, the, if people ask me hard questions, uh, I sort of fear of being put on the spot and not being able to have an answer, Okay. Anybody else? It's hard because uh, if there was a conversation that just naturally got in the religion category and you can start in, uh, moving it towards what you want to talk about with Jesus, but conversations don't get in that category very often, so I have to initiate it. Yeah, so how do you get to the category where it's comfortable and natural to speak about your faith? I mean, if you're talking about religion, uh, and that might come up to speak of ISIS or other things that can bring religion in the topic, and the religion is oftentimes in the news, uh, so it can come up that way. But how do you raise the topic, or just wait until it happens that the conversation is around that? And there are ways of actually raising the topic. Other thoughts? Yeah, you talk about the weather, how nice the day it is, or that kind of thing, but uh, uh, hardly ever do you get talking about their past or their experiences. or yeah. So there's different levels of, of, uh, of a conversation, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah. I was going to say, just add more complexity to it about all the different denominations and all the different pieces of Christianity that, that we see today in our world, and, and you literally could almost have a debate with another Christian because of these different viewpoints, and when you, when you have that Christianity... Uh, Catholics and all the different people who embrace Jesus, then you have even more of a, 
complexity to, to how you speak about it. Yeah, two years ago, I had a debate with an atheist PhD student uh, in Helsinki. And then we got together afterwards a couple days later over coffee. And during the conversation, I asked him, do you wish the Christian faith were true? He said, well, it depends on what brand of Christianity you're talking about. <laughs> if it's your, sure, your Lutheran, uh, very liberal, uh, well, that'd be OK. Uh, but if it's a, if a religion that believes in hell, no, I don't want that. <laughs> so we actually talked for the next 20 minutes or so about the doctrine of hell. Uh, so it was actually quite a good conversation. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> that question, do you wish the Christian faith were true? I'll come back to that again. It's a, a very good question to ask in, in various contexts. Here are some things I commend. Not wanting to be pushy. You don't want to be pushing your, your, yourself on another person. Nobody likes having somebody pour something on them. Awkwardness in raising the topic. How do you get around the topic? Fear of what others will think of us. There was a PhD student in, in astronomy at UC Santa Cruz who, during his fourth year, started to have an interest in the faith. His sister had become a Christian, and I got to know him during that time. Got, to get, got together early in his fifth year, and I asked him uh, if there was, if he saw any particular barriers or hurdles between himself and becoming a Christian. He said, well, one is what people think of me. And being a PhD student in astronomy at a place like University of California, Santa Cruz, and becoming a Christian is not advantageous to what people think of you. I guarantee you that when he actually did become a Christian, when he became a Christian, there would be colleagues, uh, fellow PhD students or professors who would think, I thought he was smarter than that. So you get lowered in other people's estimation because you, you believe it, or that you're narrow-minded. Fear questions one can answer. Uh, not convinced that our friends need Jesus. Now, as evangelicals, we, at least in our head, believe they do need Jesus. But do we actually feel that our neighbor, who's a nice person, that person really needs Jesus? Or are they really quite fine? I mean, do we really feel like their life would be better, really better, if they could discover what I have? And having that conviction or not having that conviction sometimes erodes the desire uh, to raise the topic and get on the, the possibly troubled waters. A few foundational things. One, is important for us to have a clear understanding of the gospel. If someone were to ask you, could you write out, sort of, uh, give, give me some pointers, some, some points on what, what, what's essential to the gospel. Could you do that? And I think it's important for us to be able to say, yeah, I, I could do that. Now, you don't often, I don't think, have the opportunity to lay out the whole gospel. Sometimes evangelism is, well, you get your foot in the door and then lay out the whole gospel. Well, that can happen, but typically people don't want the whole gospel at that point. Uh, and it's, it's perfectly good and worthwhile to talk about different parts of it. But there are situations where you can quite easily talk about the whole gospel. There was an international student who'd been attending our church for a while, and I got together with him for breakfast, and I, I said to him, uh, going to our church, you quite frequently hear Christians talk about the gospel. Do you feel like you understand what that means? And he said, well, sort of. And I said, well, if it'd be of help, I'd be glad to just lay out what I think are key points in what's involved in the gospel. Would that be helpful for you? Yeah, that would be helpful. So I pulled up my pen and my paper napkin and started writing on the paper napkin some points. And each point would go along and ask, did that make sense to you? And he might say, yeah, that makes sense to me, or no, and we talk about it. And it's not guaranteed that I would get all the way through it, but nonetheless, I was basically invited to lay out the whole content of the gospel. So you can do that, and it's, you need to be convinced that it's good news for everyone. There are questions which people raise, which can be hard to address. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Couldn't God just forgive us? Thought about that one? Most people are basically good. Surely a merciful God wouldn't require perfection. How would you answer that? God surely wouldn't send anyone to hell just because they didn't profess certain beliefs, would he? Okay. If God's all good and all powerful, he wouldn't allow so much suffering and evil. So these are, these are I mean, hard questions, but they're questions which we ought to wrestle with. How would I respond to these? I mean, you're not guaranteed you're going to get precisely these questions. 
But it's good to have thought about these things. So when you come into it, uh, you're sort of, okay, you have some set of questions that people might ask and have some idea how you respond to it. Another foundation is when a person becomes a Christian, three things have to come together. When the person has to at least believe the Christian faith is plausible. They can still have doubts. They can still have lots of questions. But it has to make enough sense of them that it may well be true. Okay, so there's the, the truth question. There's the motivation question. Do I want to follow Jesus? Even the demons believe, okay? Uh, but if a person is not motivated, no matter how good your arguments are, your arguments will not persuade them to become a Christian. There has to be motivation. And typically, that involves looking at Christians and asking, what would it be like if I become a Christian? What does it mean for Christians that they follow Jesus? What's going on uh, with them? Their motivation is a big one. A question of will. A person can be thinking about the Christian fight, maybe yes, maybe no, but the simplest definition of a Christian is one who is a follower of Jesus. That means you're actively seeking to align your life for God and his purposes. It's not just a person who checks off a certain list of propositions. (laughs) You need the propositions, yes. There are beliefs which are essential. But being a Christian is really being a follower of Jesus and not simply having signed off on some propositions at some point and feel like I'm in. I've passed the test. And the day they come before God, God will give me the questions and I'll have the right answers for the questions. Well, no, it's were you a follower of Jesus? Did you follow, you follow him? It's also important to recognize that prayer is crucial. Anybody who becomes a Christian, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit working in their life. And the Holy Spirit can work through the things we say, and the Holy Spirit can work through arguments that we give. If you look at Paul when he's speaking, he's oftentimes arguing, in fact, there's the language of proving to them from the Old Testament passages that Jesus is the Messiah, that kind of thing. But you can have this very, you have perfectly good arguments, but if there's not an openness on the part of the person, the Holy Spirit is not at work there, the person could just say, oh, okay, that's interesting. Not doing anything with it. But when a person says, oh, I like that. That makes sense to me. Actually, God's spirit is working in their mind. God's spirit works in their mind as well as their heart. But we have to recognize the Holy Spirit, and we don't know what that person really needs. So we need the Holy Spirit's guidance on when to speak, timing. There are times when people are open and times when they're not. And we need God's spirit to be with us to speak at times when there's openness, which is there, and to be able to say things and to listen well and to be able to connect with whether at things which we simply can't know on our own. Friendship and trust are not essential in every case, but for most people who become Christians, it's through a friendship with someone who's a Christian. I have a friend who became a Christian, had never met Christians, just got to listening to some Christian radio and became a Christian. It can happen, but it doesn't happen very often. Typically, people who become Christians become Christians through a friendship with a Christian. It's usually not just one. If it's just one, it's easy for the person to say, well, I like you. Christians I don't like, but you're an exception. And there are various people who view me as, well, Christians I don't like very much, but Peter, I like you. You're okay. Uh, but they don't sort of associate my, my, who I am with my faith. So a thing that's really valuable and helpful is to get them in connection with other Christians so they can actually see, see what other Christians are like and then they can put the pieces together. Ah, oh, I like these people. And their faith is what they have in common. Maybe it actually makes, does makes a difference uh, in, in their life. Prior relationship is not essential. When I sit down on an airplane, I'll oftentimes say, hi, I'm introduced myself. Or perhaps I'll say, uh, with the, the, the city we're going to, is that your destination? And the person might say yes. And I say no, but uh, then uh, are you going for business, for, for vacation? And the person will, will, will say something. And the way a person responds, either the conversation stops or the conversation keeps going. If the person just gives a very short answer, (laughs) I get the message they don't really want to talk. So I don't push it. But nonetheless, asking that kind of question is a perfectly acceptable thing to do. uh, But you need to be sensitive to whether the person actually wants to speak or not. And if they're very short answers and don't say anything else, then you just drop it. But if, in fact, they seem open to conversation, then the conversation can continue. I also want to note that it's harder speaking with people you've known for a long time. You might think that'd be easier, because after all, you know this person. It's not a stranger. But actually, it's harder, because the person knows you, and maybe you haven't talked much about your faith. They know you're a Christian. 
or with family members, when you, you know, talk to them about the faith, if, if it doesn't go well, there's consequences that you live with. Uh, talking to a colleague at work, you live with the consequences of, 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 of the relationship, hence it can be harder with uh, family and with friends. Let me give one suggestion. I suppose you've known a person for quite a while and you haven't talked about your faith. You can at some point say, say to the person, you know that I go to church on Sundays and I'm, that I'm a Christian, but I confess I've never really talked to you about what that means to me. If at some point you'd like to hear some of my story about why I believe what I believe, I'd be happy to share that with you. Okay, so you're sort of confessing, I haven't, you know, <laughs> sorry, I haven't said more about it, uh, but you're not saying let's do it now. And the person might say, okay, at some point, that'd be nice. Rarely will a person say, no, I don't, never want to talk about that. <laughs> they might, <laughs> but that's rare. If they say, well, at some point, that'd be nice. Then another time, when you're in a comfortable situation, you can say, you mentioned at some point you'd like to hear more of my story. Um, if this is a good time, or you know, we do it some other time. Person, if the person keeps putting you off, then you can say, well, it sounds like maybe you just don't want me to talk about it. That's okay. And the person says, no, I'd really rather not talk about it. Okay, you have to be sensitive that way. But nonetheless, when you give the person the opportunity to do it later at their convenience, it opens the door to, again, later on, raising it and bringing it up. So one way of not being pushy is to suggest at some point we could talk more about it if you'd like. There's art in conversation. For people who are good in conversation and good at getting deeper and deeper, deeper in conversation, talking about the gospel is much easier than for those who are speaking at a level one uh, conversation. <clears throat> Before I get to sort of levels, I want to uh, do an analogy here. What makes a conversation about politics enjoyable? I was thinking about this and thinking about what things make for an enjoyable conversation about politics, and I realized that each of these things actually carry directly over into what makes a topic about religion enjoyable. Okay, so here are some of the things I came up with. One, you have the opportunity to say what you think. If you're talking about politics and the other person, and you have no opportunity to speak, that's, that's not enjoyable. So you have the opportunity to say what you think, and the person actually listens to you. And the other person shows an interest in knowing what you think. If the person has no interest in what you think, it is just on their own grandstand, wanting to push their point, that's not an enjoyable conversation. But if the person is really interested in knowing what you think, that is a, that's significant for an enjoyable conversation. It's also helpful that the other person has some worthwhile thoughts. That's a good idea. I like that. When you acknowledge the person says something and it's a, that, that's a significant idea, to say that is affirming of the person. It helps uh, in, in, in the dialogue. The conversation needs to be by consent. Both of them have to be in this because they want to be talking about it. And it's also important that it continues only as long as both want it to. One key thing about that is when you're in conversation, if you have pauses, that gives the person the opportunity to say, I really need to be going to, you know, they, they, they'll let you know, or in the pause, they may respond, but the pause gives an opportunity to let you know whether the person wants to continue the conversation or whether they want to tie it up or whether they want to run off someplace else. Uh, something is learned in the process. If you're in a conversation about politics and you didn't learn anything, well, then you're just simply sharing your thoughts. But when you actually learn something from the other person, oh, that's good. That's a worthwhile thing to know. Uh, and then finally, a, a mutual respect or friendship grows. So rather than po talking about politics creating conflict, actually talking about politics, if it meets these criteria, actually helps a relationship to grow. Your friendship has grown because there's been this mutual respect in the dialogue and you've appreciated each other. So even though it's about a controversial topic and you may disagree a lot, nonetheless, your friendship can actually grow through it. And think about these things about talking about the faith. All of them make sense in talking about the faith. Are you giving the other person a chance to speak? Are you listening to the other person? Is the other person giving a chance for you to speak? Is it by consent only as long as you want it to go? Is something being learned? I know a difficulty I have is that I have all these ideas racing in my head. And I'm often not, oftentimes not a very good listener. And if I listen more, I'd say, oh, 
Okay, that's a good idea. That's a good thought. Uh, but if it's all just Peter Payne is his ideas, uh, no, that's not so good. I, I need to actually pay more attention and expect to hear something worthwhile from the other person, whatever it may, may be. Again, dialogue is important, not monologue. Okay, levels of conversation. Level one was mentioned before. You need to get a conversation going. So the first level I'll call it small talk. Uh, when we were in Finland, interesting enough, I was told, uh, I forget how that came up, I was told the Finns do not engage in small talk. Oh, really? <laughs> well, the Finnish people have been dominated by the Danes, by the Swedes, by the Russians. They have a long history of being dominated by other cultures. And culturally, they're, they're, they're not brash. They're not an arrogant people, culturally speaking. I mean, that's not, obviously not true of everyone. Um, but nonetheless, it was so that it was when, when Finns speak, when they have something to say. And when they don't have something to say, they just, they're quiet. <laughs> so, oh, it's a very interesting cultural observation. So when I was giving this talk to them, I said, whatever you call it, uh, I, I know Finns don't engage in small talk, but somehow you need a conversation going. How do you break the ice? How do you sort of get the ball going and get some conversation going? And, and the Finns can think about how they, they, they do that, whether they call it small talk or not. The next level is genuine interest. And this is something that I think we oftentimes miss. If you're in a conversation with a person, listen to something they're genuinely interested in. It may or may not be something you're very much interested in, but if you can put that to one side and ask them about that, you'll find that they are, whoo, they're, they're, they're off and running. I mean, suppose they are Warriors fans, and you find that, uh, and it says, you say, it sounds to me like you're really an enthusiastic Warriors fan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, who do you like most? And you talk, ask them questions. And people love to have others ask them questions about something they're genuinely interested in. And that is doing a great deal in building a relationship. And it may flip around, the person say, well, what about you? Are you big into sports? And they may offer to you the opportunity to speak. But look for genuine interest, and then try to have them talk about what their genuine interest is. Uh, values and feelings. You can ask the question not only, you know, why are you a Warriors fan, but what do you find particularly enjoyable about that? Or what's, what, what's, what's, what's particularly exciting to you about watching basketball? Or what, what, uh, what, what do you like most about it? Is it something you do with friends? Uh, you sort of get a little more of the feelings behind the values, the, the, thing, the reasons why, why, why they do it. Uh, then you get aspirations and deeper values. What are our long-term goals? When you get into long-term goals and what really matters, that raises worldview kinds of questions, and the, and the Christian faith easily comes in at, at that point. There is a... Uh, very gifted evangelist, Becky Manley Pipper. She's actually going to be at this conference in Germany in December that I'm going to be at. I'll be a plenary speaker. She wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. Some of you may have heard of that book. Uh, in that book, she uses three terms, investigate, stimulate, and relate. Investigate, when I was talking to my wife about it, she says, investigate sounds like interrogate. No, 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 no. no that's not the idea. But investigate is trying to find out about the person. Show some curiosity, find out about them, ask good questions about the person. Uh, in the midst of that, uh, you'll find that people really are, are appreciative that you are interested in them and what, 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 they, what, what they're interested in. Stimulate is instead of raising the topic yourself, what you want to say, say something that gives them the opportunity to respond, it's sort of like a, a, a little teaser that is, is, is out there and they can respond to it or not. And then relate is uh, sharing the, the, your, your faith. So investigating uh, is getting to know the other person. There's lots of things you can ask about in opening conversation. Origin, siblings, parents, education, interests that they have, their current situation, where do they work, uh, are they students, uh, single, married, children, residents. I mean, these are just true for everyone. So they're just sort of general small talk. I mean, it's not necessarily small if you're talking about family, but it's something everybody has some, some background in, and you can ask questions about those things. It's good to ask questions that go a bit deeper. So, for instance, when I meet with a student, I'll ask, what are you studying? What year are you? you know, those are two sort of basic small talk, kind of introductory kind of things. But a deeper question is, what got you interested in physics? 
Or if they're a PhD student, do you like the program you're in? Or if you were to do it over again, would you pursue physics? I think those kinds of questions are deeper questions. They're perfectly appropriate questions to ask, but they're questions that are going deeper than simply what's your major or what, uh, you know, the, those kinds of things. And to ask those, those questions are, are, are worthwhile. So what do you mean with a working person? Here are some questions that illustrate going a bit, a bit deeper. First of all, the simple introductory thing, what kind of work do you do? And what company do you work for? That's sort of, everybody can do that. Um, but then what got you interested in doing this? And are you happy working for whatever the company is? Uh, what do you enjoy most about the work? Do you find parts of it difficult? I mean, some of these are a bit, <laughs> you can say, if, I, if, I'm being too, if I'm being too pushy, just let me know. But I'm curious, though, what, you know, what, 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 what things do you find most interesting? And are there things that are challenging? Uh, do you work closely with others? And how is that? Satisfaction and work is very closely tied to the people you're working with. You may love what you're doing, but if you don't love the people you're working with, it's not a good work situation. So do you work with others? How is that? Uh, do you think you'll continue doing this long term? Or are they hoping to be able to find another job that's sort of a stepping stone to, to something else? Uh, if you were to do things over again, would you follow this career or this uh, pursuit? And then, of course, you can shift gears and say, when, when not working, what do you enjoy doing? Just what, what are your interests? So this example is of how you talk about something like work, but get deeper, then you would just simply do superficial things, and you actually start finding some interesting things about the person. And likely, if you, after a while, they will start saying, well, what do you do? And they'll put the ball back in your court. Even if it doesn't, nonetheless, you're showing a respect for that person, and they appreciate the conversation that, that you have with them. I'll skip over what I say with grad, grad students. You can also ask about religious background. So that, that's the opening questions. I'm curious, did you grow, so you asked maybe where the person was from, uh, and after we found out where they're from, uh, I'm saying, I'm curious, did you grow up in a religious family, religious background? And you can ask that. It's, it's, it's not being pushy. They could say yes or no, 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 not, not particularly religious. If it was a more religious background, uh, you might say, well, do you consider yourself to embrace the same faith as, you're, as you grew up with? No, no. I mean, they might say, well, I used to consider myself to be a Christian, but I don't anymore. So you find out things like that. And you could do this in just the first time you're talking with someone and a conversation going on. If a person says they had been a Christian, I mentioned earlier... Uh, uh, well, if the person had been a Christian, I can ask, I'm curious, and I'll say, you don't need to tell me if you don't want to, because this is, this is being, this is, this is asking quite a bit. What led you to change your view? And again, you don't want to talk about that's okay. But they'll, they'll, you know, well, what was it? Was it persons that they knew? Was it bad experiences that they had? Was it questions or issues? Was it elements of theology they didn't like? Were there things on the internet they saw, maybe atheist websites? Uh, most uh, atheist students who are in atheist student groups do a lot of surfing the web. They don't read Christian web websites very often, but they read lots of atheist websites. <laughs> so, but uh, that, that may be uh, part of what is, is, is involved in it. A good question uh, for a person who used to be a Christian is, uh, do you wish the Christian faith were true? I mentioned that at the beginning. If a person says, yeah, I really do wish it were true, that tells you an awful lot. It means the person is no longer Christian, but it's not because they don't like it or don't want to believe it. They felt, I can't believe it. Maybe there are issues or questions which came up which just persuaded them, no, I, 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 can't, I can't believe that. It's, it's not something I can believe. But to say, yes, I do wish it were true, I could follow up by saying, well, I can't guarantee that I could persuade you that it's true, but I think I probably could help you to view it as being more credible or more believable than you currently do. <laughs> Would you be interested in having some sort of ongoing some conversation? So that's a possibility. But uh, if the person says, no, I don't wish it were true, why do you say that? All right? It's important that you realize this person really doesn't want to believe. That what are the issues? 
And when you find that those issues, those are things that you need to address probably more than trying to argue for the Christian faith. There's the whole motivational uh, question. I remember one time <clears throat> uh, having a uh, conversation with a person and the topic of the, the case for the resurrection came up. And it took about 20 minutes laying out a case for the resurrection. At the end of it, the student said, okay, so maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. Rise from the dead. Strange things happen. What? <laughs> so it really didn't make any difference. So actually, if a person raised an objection, you can ask the question, if I were to give a good response to that objection, would it make a difference to you? And the person said, no, not really. <laughs> okay, that's just one of the things I throw out there. But no, I, I, it wouldn't make a difference to me. But if the person said, yeah, it would make a difference to me, Actually, they're opening that to be more receptive. And if you do give a response that's helpful for them, and they said it makes a difference to me, um, they're saying, okay, you have an answer to that? Okay, that, that does help me. So that's another good question that one can ask. If you meet somebody who's not Christian, say Hindu, this is kind of an unusual question. But you could ask, I'm curious, if someone were to say to you, you're a Hindu just because you grew up in that faith, how would you respond? Right? This is, this is kind of, I'm curious, I mean, this, is a, this is presenting my faith, but asking them a question, which is a very, it's good to find out what they think about that. When we were in, uh, in, in Kosice, Slovakia, this last year, we went to a dinner, uh, and the student uh, staff person had invited some Hindu friends, or, or the Indian friends, to come. There were about uh, seven or eight of them that came to this dinner. One of them said he was a Christian, and the staff worker asked, well, what does that mean to you? Maybe I mentioned, uh, no, okay, so what, 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 what does that mean to you? And the person said, well, it means being a kind, caring, honest person. Okay, not a very deep understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Others were Hindu, and I asked one of them, well, how do you respond when somebody that you know is Hindu becomes an atheist? Oh, that doesn't happen very often, <laughs> was their response. I said, well, Suppose, suppose that, I mean, there's lots of gods, and different Hindus worship different gods. Suppose that you get married, and the wife, your wife's god, their family god, is different than the god you worship. What do you do then? And they said, well, the wife adopts the husband's god. Oh, okay. This, this is quite eye-opening to me, sort of how they view this, how they, how, they, how, they, how they deal with this. But that was just fascinating to me, to hear sort of how they deal with these kinds of questions, because I asked... Uh, that, that kind of question. You can just, you know, a good question to ask of you, you could ask of them. So that's just a suggestion. Another question for a person like this is, do you think it's important for others to come to embrace the beliefs that you hold? The person might say, no, this is what I believe. Other people believe what they want. If you talk to somebody who's Buddhist, an American who becomes Buddhist, rather than simply being born and raised Buddhist, uh, there's a good chance the person would believe that actually Buddhism is good for everybody. If everybody could get into Buddhist ideas and thoughts, their lives would have more tranquility, they'd have less anxiety. And yeah, everybody would benefit from becoming Buddhist. So they might say, yeah, it'd be good for everyone to become Buddhist. Now that may or may not lead back into talking about your own faith, but showing that kind of curiosity about what other people believe and asking more penetrating questions is a great thing to do. Okay, stimulate is saying something that invites a response but isn't immediately giving a response. Here are some uh, things. Uh, the person may, I remember talking to a person recently where he said that he grew up in a church and whenever he asked questions, people would say, don't ask questions, just have faith. So he felt, uh, he didn't use the term as sort of a straitjacket, like your intellectual straitjacket, you just couldn't ask any questions. When he got to university and was able to ask questions, he had this wonderful sense of freedom or release. Ah, now I can finally ask questions. And he said, wave goodbye to the Christian faith. I responded by saying, it sounds like your experience, you, no, I said, I said that, that uh, actually my experience is quite different than yours. And I stopped. Instead of just saying what, how it's different, I waited for the well, how so? The how so means I have that person's attention and they want to know what I think. And so I'll say that uh, growing up, I didn't feel pressured that I had to believe this or that. Um, my brother John here, this is a story about him. We were at the family table, 
And uh, my mom was sitting at one on the table, my dad the other table, and John was raising some questions about the faith. And I was looking at my mom, and my mom didn't literally have her nails in her, in her sort of biting her nails, but I could tell she was anxious, worried. And my dad said uh, to, to John, this is my brother John, as much as your mother and I want, would like, want you to be able to come to the faith that we have, that's something you have to come to yourself. So I was never in a position of where I couldn't ask questions. When I decided to major in philosophy, I wasn't, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> You'll lose your faith majoring in philosophy. So I, was, I was, always had the freedom to ask questions. And for that person to realize, oh, no, not all Christians are like me. It's not true that every Christian is prevented from asking questions or questions aren't taken seriously. Where you sort of assume that evangelical Christians just have faith and don't want to ask hard questions. Uh, so my experience has been quite different. Yours have been quite different from mine. Quite frequently, you talk to someone, and it's maybe on a Monday or something like that, and you ask, what did you do over the weekend? At least among students, and, you know, that's, did you do anything over the weekend? Uh, and given that you likely went to church on Sunday, you might say, well, I went to church on Sunday, and the sermon that I heard on Sunday was particularly good. He said some things that I found quite helpful. The person doesn't say anything, wasn't listening, just goes on. Okay, they're not paying attention. But the person might say, well, why do you say that? They're actually inviting you to share about the sermon. Now, not very often do non-Christians want to hear you tell about a sermon, but because you said it was particularly helpful for you, that raised their curiosity, and they ask you, well, what was it that was said? So again, the openness to what you have to say is greatly increased when they ask rather than you're simply speaking. If a topic is raised, I'll sometimes say, I recently read an essay or a book that I found quite helpful on that subject. If a person is listening to all, they'll say, what book was that? (laughs) Or what essay was that? But when they ask that question, again, you have their, their direct attention. Or, I've been thinking a fair amount about that question. Wait, see what happens. Oh, what have you been thinking about that question? Again, they're asking you to speak. Just in terms of strategy, when you're, when you're speaking when you, by invitation, rather than just simply telling, you have a much more receptive uh, audience. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll say, Jesus told a parable related to that topic. An example, this last year, I was in Prague and was speaking to an international group of international students, International Baptist Church, and they have a student ministry, and I was there for a Q&A. And uh, one of the uh, topics that God raised, I remember how, it was the question of fairness and how do Christians view fairness. And I said, Jesus gave a parable on the topic of fairness or it relates to fairness. Can you guess what parable? Workers in the field, exactly. So this, 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 the farmer hires day workers at the beginning of the day, and they work all day. Uh, and then there's people in the middle of the day who come, come across, and they work for him. And then we just, uh, just a couple hours left in the day, find some people who haven't found work, and they come and work for him. At the end of the day, he pays them all the same. And the student said, that's not fair. <laughs> well, by sort of American standards, you should get equal pay for equal work. If you only work a couple hours, you should get a couple hours pay, and you shouldn't. But uh, I said, well, what happened here, the people who worked all day and got paid, they got paid the fair wage. They got paid what they expected to get paid. That wasn't being unfair. Is it unfair to be generous? And after all, the people who worked half a day or just a couple hours, they probably had the same kind of expenses, same mouths to feed, same family, that kind of thing, as the person who worked all day. So their needs are just as great. How does one think about fairness? I think Jesus views fairness in a different way than we oftentimes do when it comes simply to economics and what we think is fair. <clears throat> uh, so if a person gets paid the same for an hour's worth of work as, compared as to eight hours' worth of work, that's not fair. But from a Christian perspective, fairness is viewed differently. So that this that was raised. In relating your faith, uh, you'll however you, you do this, it's it needs to both you're sharing your own, your own experiences, your own testimony, but also sharing things about your faith and share relating it oftentimes connects with whatever the topic of conversation was. Again, it can be current events and politics, injustice. 
stress, aspirations, uh, just lots of things. Uh, what sort of natural beauty, you know, look how beautiful the day it is. And uh, saying, yeah, I just uh, thank God every time I, 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 or when, I, when, I, when, I, when I see the nature around me. The person might make, not make any, say anything about that, but a person can say, oh, you know, it catches their attention. So you can bring your faith in to conversation without pushing it all, and it may be just simply a comment. You know, asking permission to share your thoughts. I've talked about that. Uh, speak of Jesus. It's very important to share your testimony, but it's also important to point people towards Jesus. Again, people can view you as being you're nice and you're, I like you, and that's a nice story for you, but that's not true for me. They need to be attracted to Jesus as well as being attracted to you. One of the best means of outreach you can do is to get someone involved in what I call an investigative Bible discussion. It could be one-on-one. It actually works better if there's a group of people who get together and you read, say, a chapter from one of the Gospels and talk about it. What do you see happening? What does Jesus do? What's, 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 what's the situation? What's the motivation behind the people who are there? What do you make of Jesus' response? And my experience is that people actually love that kind of discussion, where you're not simply saying, this is what it says, but you're talking about what it said there and why. Uh, and the value of that is they're both being attracted to Jesus, slightly. I mean, it's not guaranteed that looking at the Gospels, the person will be attracted to Jesus. But there's a lot about Jesus that's very attractive, and he never gives a canned response. His response to each person is different, and how he responds is sometimes surprising and very interesting. And people will find Jesus attractive, but they'll also be attracted to you. So they'll both be attracted to you, who are, who are Christians, or other people in the discussion. Maybe they're not all Christians. Uh, and they're also attracted to Jesus. Again, monologue is, is you don't want a monologue. You want a conversation. And I mentioned earlier uh, saying pause, pausing and uh, asking if that makes sense. The last section here is encouraging a response. I'm not going to go over the slides here, but there are a couple things which I want to say about encouraging a response. We oftentimes think about evangelism with the goal of the person becoming a Christian. And that is a goal we have. Although the goal beyond that is not so the person become a Christian, but becoming actually growing in discipleship. So our goal ought to be to make disciples, go and make disciples, not go and make believers. <laughs> we want to make disciples of people. So that's the goal. But before a person becomes a Christian, there are a variety of uh, thresholds of things they, they, they need to go through. And it's important for a person to be responding to what they've already heard and not just simply respond to the question, do you want to become a Christian? So something I find very helpful, if they see something in what Jesus, in Jesus is teaching that they like, I'll encourage them, challenge them, put that into practice. Not go over this next week. Think about what, what you're saying here. And try to put it in practice. And maybe next week we get together and I'll ask how it went. It's kind of like the Bible study. How, how do things go over this past week on some topic they were wrestling with? When a non-Christian is responding to truth and acting upon it, that opens themselves up to more truth. Jesus has this basic principle that if you have truth and don't do anything with it, you're not just static, you lose what you had. If you respond to truth you have, you're given more truth. And that's also true in relationships with non-Christians. Encourage them to act on what they know to be true, even if they're still a fair distance from becoming a Christian. Because by responding to truth, it opens them up to, to more truth. Uh, it's also important to encourage them to do things. So, for instance, you might encourage them to come to a, uh, a, a Bible study or to some Christian event. So ask them to act on things, to, to engage. So they're asking for a response. It's, it's encouraging them to get, get involved with something. This last uh, spring, one of the places we were in Europe was in Malta. And we ended up initially staying at this really awful place. It was supposed to be an Airbnb, but I really don't think it was an official Airbnb. It was a dump. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, but the one good, the surprising thing about it, there was a woman who was staying in this place along with us. We'd just been there for a few days, and she was from Brazil. And we never would have met her if we hadn't been in this dump of a place. And she came to a lecture that I gave. She came and met some of the Christian students there, and she's, she's Catholic in background. 
is doing some work in preparation for studying there in Malta. And so she's going to be now involved in a Bible study. Okay, encouraging a person to get involved in something where they can learn more. Where it's just a one-off thing, and those are good things, but try to encourage them to get involved in situations where they can learn more and grow more and, and act on what they know. So those are just a few things about response. Let me open this point for questions that you might have. And uh, we'll, we'll, we have a bit of time here. So what are questions that you have? Who would you suggest as a, one of the leading uh, authors on apologetics? You know, once you get past all this, you get into the details of Christianity. Is there an author you would suggest that a lay people might read and have a better... Uh... Uh, yeah, there, there are a variety of people. William Lane Craig um, ha, has, some, has some good stuff. Um, there is a person who has written several things by Baker. Um, the, uh, that, that's, that, that's, uh, that's just your interpretation was one of them. Let's see, what's his name? Uh, mental blank right now. Anyway, uh, there, there, there are people out there who really do, do quite, a, quite a good job. What I suggest is you can, you can do a little surfing on the Internet and find bigger essays uh, and uh, then try an essay. And somebody you would you from your experience say yeah you can, when you read this guy or a girl woman believe it yeah okay let me I'll, I'll think I'll think of the name of this person who has these several things by Baker but if you go online and look up uh, that's just your interpretation you'll find the book he said it's it's a book that basically is a series of objections to the faith and each chapter is a response to that objection and he's written about four different books with that kind of format uh, all by by Baker. Uh, he has a PhD in philosophy, is, so gives good responses, uh, but it's quite accessible and easy to get to. A problem with oftentimes reading Christian philosophers, if they're writing for philosophers, you could be in over your head. <laughs> so you need somebody who both has the background and knows what the questions are and is able to communicate it in a, in a, in a, in a clear way. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, for my generation, when I was growing up, an awful lot of us were, were deeply influenced by, by C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis gives illustrations that are great at being able to talk about truths, which are more abstract, but very practical illustrations to bring, bring, bring it to life. There's a person who is a uh, Francis Collins, Nobel Prize winner in biochemistry and genetics, uh, and he became a Christian after uh, engaging in practice. So, right, he, he, was a, he was a doctor before he went back into being a professor in, in, in genetics. Uh, and so it was after he was already in practice that he, that he became a Christian. Uh, brilliant individual. And uh, his, it's, uh, there, there's just, it's, it's encouraging to read people like that. And C.S. Lewis was significant for him. He read Mere Christianity, and that one, Mere Christianity was a significant book for him in becoming a Christian. Yeah? Um, on your website, you link to stuff that you've been reading. Can you post some stuff you've been writing that you uh, I don't do very much of that. Um, I should do more of that. It's a good su suggestion. The things I write, I, I do lots of footnoting. And so I have lots of notes of, uh, so if you read things... Yeah, on my website, there's both audio tapes, so a number of, quite a few of the seminars I've given here at Mount Hermon, I've given them for about 10 years now, uh, without very much in the way of overlap on topics. Uh, so you can go there. There are some debates online that you can go to, look at Peter Payne debate, and you'll find some of them. <clears throat> Something I was reminded this last week to do is to contact the person who invited me to Finland, because I know those debates are going to go online. So I just need to find out now what, how, to, how to, uh, to get there. So you could email me, if you think about it, and you mentioned some debates in Finland, and that'll be an encouragement to me to get back in touch with her and find out the links so you can actually watch those. Yeah. Would you mind saying again um, the introduction to talking about your faith with a person that you've known for a long time or a family member? Yeah, a person you know for a long time, you say, you know I'm a Christian, you know I go to church regularly, and we haven't talked about it. And I apologize for not having spoken about it, I feel bad about that. Um, but uh, if you'd like to hear more of my story, what took place, uh, I'd be glad to share it with you at some point. So at some point, you're not saying it has to be right now. Yeah. For myself, uh, sometimes I get asked the question, why are you a Christian? 
And I'll respond back by saying, which why question are you asking? <laughs> are you asking the philosophical why question? <laughs> you want Peter Payne, the philosopher, giving, giving that kind of response? Do you want the autobiographical story? Paul Copan, there we go, very good. Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N. That's just your interpretation. Now, Francis Collins is the, is the geneticist. Uh, the Language of God is a book that he has written that uh, is, 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 is quite popular, well-read. Yes? So you were talking about the Buddhists that, as American, came from a, uh, my friend came from a Catholic background. Um, he, he, he draws these equals, like, um, you know, his God is equal to my God kind of thing. Like, he'll say, uh, you know, a particular situation will come up, he'll say, well, I'm praying for you. And I'll tell my wife, I'll say, Andy's praying, but I, I don't know quite who he's praying to. And yeah, if, if, he's a, if he's a Buddhist, it's a little bit odd, and the, the Buddhists do, do pray to the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva in Buddhism is a person who has the opportunity to go into nirvana, but instead of entering nirvana, as Buddha did, they decide to stay back, and they can help others who are, who are going along the path. So there is an aspect of praying for help from the Bodhisattva, and there's one branch of Buddhism that actually puts value on faith in the Bodhisattva. Uh, so faith actually has, it's just still a scale, but faith counts on the scale. It's not just your, 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 your deeds. Yeah, so I, I remember one time talking to a Hindu, and Hindus will oftentimes say, I pray regularly to God. And the way he was talking about his, 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 his relationship with God, it sounded like an evangelical. I pray with God and sense his presence, and I do that on a daily basis. You know? Okay, this, you know, what's, what, what's going on there? So how is that, is that God sort of in their mind really the one true God? Or is it simply a God amongst many gods? So how do they, how do they view that? It, you, it's, I, I didn't have sort of ongoing conversation to find out more of well, what exactly is going on here. But you do find people who will say, oh, what you're saying is true for me. I have my own time of prayer and time with God. You know, I've had many conversations with this person. And so one, one, at one point, I just like drew to the bottom line. I said, okay, well, do you believe in an afterlife? Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, yeah, kind of. Like, we just kind of like into the, you know, the atmosphere or the earth or whatever. You know, not really heaven or hell. You're merging with the world soul, one might say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for those who believe in reincarnation, uh, if you find an American who believes in reincarnation, uh, uh, a, good, a comment that I'll make is sort of, how do you respond to this? Uh, my, re my understanding is that most people who believe in reincarnation, who are Hindus and Buddhists, do not view reincarnation as a good thing. Reincarnation means you're still stuck here. Right? You're stuck for another round. Keep working and eventually get out of the cycle. But reincarnation is not, ah, there's more than just simply death. Uh, you're stuck back again. You're brought back into this world of suffering. So if you're actually from a Buddhist or Hindu background, reincarnation is not an attractive thing. It's something you're stuck with. You can work with the reincarnation, but you want to get out of it. Whereas I think many Americans who believe in reincarnation is kind of like, well, I don't believe in heaven, but reincarnation gives me this eternal life <laughs> because reincarnation takes place. But it's, it's worthwhile to know that's not actually how Buddhists or Hindus view reincarnation. That's how Americans from sort of substitute reincarnation for heaven view it. Other questions? If a person basically says, I don't want to talk about it, what do you say? Oh. <laughs> uh, I used to, when I was a staff uh, within a varsity, the, the, the dorms were more open back then. Now, you're, most universities, you're not allowed to go door, door to door on the dormitories and introduce yourself and say, I'm a Christian. Curious to know whether you've had, if had contact with Christian community here at Stanford or wherever it may be. I, I went to, to Stanford. And then you get a conversation going. Uh, in that kind of setting, the person would sometimes say, I don't want to talk about it. <clears throat> and my response when they would say that would be, oh, sounds to me as though you've had some pretty negative experiences. And the person could say, yep, close the door, 
More often than not, the person starts telling me about their negative experiences. And 15, 15 minutes later, they, they were talking about it. religion, right? They said they didn't want to talk about it, but because I made that comment, sounds to me as though you've had some negative experiences, it put the ball back on their court. I wasn't being pushy at all. And they were able to share with me what they thought. And interestingly enough, the reason why they didn't want to talk about it didn't fit with me. Because they didn't want people like me pushing my thing on. But clearly, I wasn't that. And typically, when a person is saying things they don't like about Christians or Christianity, they're typically raising some good points. <laughs> and some of those things are good criticisms about Christians. And yeah, there oftentimes is hypocrisy. And yeah, televangelists sometimes leave one life where they're sort of raising all this money and pocketing it for themselves. And yeah, there's, there's lots of legitimate criticisms to be made about the Christian faith. But listening and, and meant, meant that actually I was, I was not the kind of person. So even a person says, I don't want to talk about it, and that, that doesn't necessarily stop all conversation. Again, you don't want to push it if a person says, I want to talk about it. You have to honor that. Just like on the airplane, if I ask a question about where they're going and they just give a one-word response, obviously they don't want to engage in conversation. They want to do whatever they're going to do on their cell phone or on their computer or whatever. <clears throat> you need to honor that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Sometimes I get someone saying, look at the horrible things that have been done in the name of God. And I agree. Yes, there have been horrible things done in the name of God. In fact, there are horrible things which a person would only do because they have some underlying belief that motivates them. I mean, whether it's the Marxists in Cambodia, the killing fields and, and killing uh, the, the huge numbers of people, or whether it be uh, the Crusades or, you know, those kinds of things, do, doing things in the, in the name of God or in the name of Jesus. But you also look at the things which people have done for the greatest good for humanity. Uh, it's in the West, people who founded hospitals, uh, humanitarian organizations. Almost always, they're very strongly religiously motivated. So what that tells us is that actually religious belief is a strong motivator. Now, what happens to it depends on what values one has behind it. If you get rid of any worldly kind of belief, yeah, you won't have as extremely bad people, but you won't have people who are making great sacrifices either. <laughs> so the people who make great sacrifices, or you know, it's on either end of it, it's because of beliefs that they have that drive them to do it. The people who flew the planes in the World Center, World the Trade Towers in, in New York City, I mean, they were motivated by the religious belief in doing this. They would be guaranteed paradise and they were honoring God and what, what they did. Uh, so the question is, what are the beliefs that lie behind it? And it's important to recognize for Christians that when you base your view, worldview and your values on Jesus, you have very strong motivation to love your enemy, to not, re to not respond in retaliation or attack. Uh, you stand for truth, but nonetheless, it's a, it's, it's, it's a caring. And that's part of the way people look at Jesus and say, <clears throat> I like what they see about Jesus. And a person actually has their faith based on Jesus and how he lived his life. Actually, there's tremendous good that could come from that. Any other question? Maybe one more question and we'll break for lunch. Can you repeat what your next subject will be? Yeah, my, my subject on Friday is I don't need God. Uh, it's actually in a conference in Germany. <clears throat> where the seminar was on responding to hard questions. And the person who was leading it took a, a, sh a sheet of paper and wrote down the questions from the students who were there. And there were about eight different questions were put on the sheet. And then he asked, which are the highest priority? Which ones you want me to respond to? And he was going to respond to the top three. Interesting, the question that got the most votes was the question, how do I respond to someone who says, I don't need God? Is that just a conversation stopper? <laughs> I don't need God. Uh, no, there's a lot that lies behind that. And when we can try to find out what lies behind that, that gives us a direction we can go. So I'll suggest some of the things that lie behind that kind of a comment. 
and then give some suggestion and responding to the different uh, things that can lie behind that comment. So that's what I'll be doing on Friday. Also, for, before you head out, there's a clipboard there. If you want to get the PowerPoint, put your name and email address there. If you only want the PowerPoint, say only PowerPoint. Uh, I am doing some writing, so I'll send you some things I'm, I'm working on writing project-wise. Uh, if you keep your name on there, and also when we're on a trip, say to Europe, I'll give updates on the, the trip to Europe. So it's periodic updates on things I want prayer for. Uh, but if you only want the PowerPoint, say only PowerPoint. The other thing there is a sheet that talks about uh, largely about our last trip to Europe this last uh, March and April. So you're welcome to pick one of those if you like. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you are with us. And Lord, uh, I confess that oftentimes I do not speak when I should. And sometimes that's because I don't have the love that you have for people around me. Lord, I pray that you would give us a love for others and that you would give us wisdom, sensitivity, to be able to speak but also listen, to try to figure out where other people are coming from and to show respect for them. But Lord, we need your, your spirit within us to give us a heart of love and also to guide us in the things that we say. But Lord, we're thankful that you are with us. Amen.